0: Tonight's episode is going to be an essay episode, but it's it's a bit heavy, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be delving into the lore of the Nephilim, and originally I had planned, and I'll, you'll hear me say this in, in the episode, so I'm sticking this on the front. Um, I'd originally planned for this to be a two part episode and getting into this I very quickly realized it's going to be at least three parts. So tonight we're going to deal with the front matter and the lower leading up to the Nephilim. Then in the next episode we're going to deal with the Sethite contrivance and how the church tried to avoid uh, dealing with these issues. And we're going to then deal with what the the Nephilim actually did and how they may have re- either returned or survived the flood. And then the following episode will be actually views of the flood. And then we'll probably come back and tie everything together. But this is a very complicated sort of set of Scriptures, both canonical and non-canonical, and it's also, there's a lot of traditions. And so ultimately, I'm going to do a DE episode on this where I really do um, do this justice. These next few episodes are going to be sort of wading in to all the lore and stuff concerning the Nephilim, the Rephaim, and the giants. But it's not going to be complete because to do that would be a DE episode, but this is important enough in prophecy and in history of Israel that if you don't want to do a DE episode, you need to at least get a, a shallow end exposure to the Nephilim, who they were, and what they were doing. So I'm putting this in at the front of the episode just to explain that this is going to be a at least a three part series that's a gloss over of the lore. It's not going to be as in depth as a later DE episode is going to be. But this is going to give you a foundation into understanding the Nephilim and the legacy they left and it was a vicious legacy. So I hope you enjoy this tonight and if you like Bible heresies and orthodoxies, don't forget to give us a like subscribe and tell other people about the shows. And so without further ado, we'll start the episode tonight. And it came to pass that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God, the Bene saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for them of all that they chose. And Jehovah said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. In their erring he is flesh. And his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And even after, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore to them children. And these were the heroes of old the men of renown. And Jehovah saw the evil of man was great on the earth, and every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis chapter 6. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go into them, and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms, and enchantments, and the cutting of roots, and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant, and they bare great giants whose height was three thousand ells, who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish and to devour one another's flesh and drink the blood. And the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. The first book of Enoch, chapter 7. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth. Namely, owing to the fornication wherein the watchers against the law of their ordinances went whoring after the daughters of men, and took themselves wives of all they chose, and they made the beginning of uncleanness. And they begat the sons, the Nephilim, and they were all unlike, and they devoured one another. And the giant slew the Napphil, and the Napphil slew the Eliho, and the Eliho mankind and one man another, and every one sold himself to work iniquity, and to shed much blood, and the earth was filled with iniquity. And after this they sinned against the beasts and the birds, and all that moves and walks upon the earth, and much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of men imagined vanity and evil continually. And the Lord destroyed everything from off the face of the earth because of the wickedness of their deeds and because of the blood which they had shed in the midst of the earth. He destroyed everything. The Book of Jubilees, chapter 7. Good evening. Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your host on this journey into the histories and debates surrounding the Bible. Tonight, we are going to deal with the Nephilim. I've mentioned them several times, and it has occurred to me that a lot of people may not be familiar with the lore of the Nephilim, because unfortunately, that's one of those sections of lore that kind of gets ignored in most churches. You know, like the bridegroom of blood or father-in-law of blood incident, This is one of those things that most preachers don't really want to touch with a 10-foot pole because most of the tradition that we have that comes from this is from canonical works that were canonical in or around the days of Yeshua but have since been lost. One of the largest ones being, of course, Enoch or Enoch, depending on your preference for that pronunciation. The book of Enoch is actually referenced by Peter. It's referenced by Jude and quoted in fact by Jude. And it seems to have been regarded by the disciples as canonical. It appears in the Dead Sea Scrolls and so was certainly within that community's version of the Jerusalem tradition was regarded as canonical. It's canonical in that other tradition, that fourth tradition, which is the Ethiopian tradition. And so the Ethiopian church regards Enoch as absolutely canonical. Enoch is one of the most widely referenced books in our Bible, although most people don't know it because most churches don't want to talk about it. The problem, as I've said with the book of Enoch, and I've said this in previous episodes, is it is very obviously the text we have today is very obviously an adulterated text. Stuff got added and changed. And so if you can't canonize the whole text, if you're really being responsible, you can't really canonize any of it. And yet, the traditions in the book of Enoch are absolutely canonical traditions, even if the book itself can't be regarded as canonical because we can't tell if the specifics are true or not. For example, 3,000 L's. An L is estimated to be approximately 45 inches. Now, if you want to do that math real quick, that's something that... uh, that's an easy thing to show. This was obviously an exaggeration in the text. So if you look at that 3,000 L's, an L is estimated to be about 45 inches, and there were 3,000 L's. So that gives us 135,000 inches. Divide that by 12 and then divide that by 5,280 and what what you get is that these giants are 2.13068 1818 miles. Miles. In other words, they're 11,250 feet high. So if you go with that 3,000 L's, and an L being approximately 45 inches, which is what, the esti- what most scholars estimate an L to be. We're talking about an 11,250 foot giant. It's very obvious that that is a problem with the text just right off the bat. And I read that just a minute ago. That's why I'm going to go ahead and deal with this early. With a biomass that large, the giant would not have been able to stand up, let alone, let's let's not even get into the blood pressure aspect and the fact that they would faint from the change in the blood pressure most likely or the fact that their bones would probably not be able to support them if they were that high. We're not even going to get into that part, okay? That's that that would absolutely put this into a DE episode, but we can trust me on this, the odds that they could be that tall and their physiology be able to allow them to physically stand with with Bone, unless they had granite for bones. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it just wouldn't happen. But have you ever, has anyone ever been to the top of Pike's Peak, which is around 10,000 feet? The air is thin up there. And it can be a struggle for someone who's kind of out of shape to breathe up there. We're talking 11,250 when they stand up and the biomass oxygen demand would mean that if they stood up and they were 11,250 feet high, they would pass out in minutes. These giants would not have been able to stand up and walk upright. There wouldn't be enough oxygen. Their biomass would demand too much oxygen. So, Right off of the bat, we see that the book of Enoch has some definite exaggerations in it, and exaggerations that really just don't make physical sense. So I want to acknowledge that first, right off of the bat with people. And I want to go ahead and say that I'm going to be referencing several different apocryphal works here in this episode. I'm going to be referencing Enoch. I'm going to be referencing Jubilees. We cannot canonize either one. Even though Jubilees actually is canon in the Ethiopian church along with Enoch. If we're really being objective, it's very difficult to argue that you can canonize these two books because they're very obvious later reworking of these narratives. And in the case of Enoch, a very obvious exaggeration of height. Now, one of the things that we also need to address here is that while the texts themselves cannot be canonized, it has to be said that at least in the case of Enoch, it was widely used, it was widely referenced, and there was some version of it that we don't have today that Yeshua and the disciples used, referenced, and considered canon. We have to acknowledge that. So when I'm referring to Enoch in this episode, I'm going to be referring mostly to the tradition. With the understanding that the tradition is absolutely canonical and there was a canonical version of Enoch, that is lost. We don't have it. And so we have to get a window into what the canonical Enoch story was with the adulterated version of the text we have today. And so we can only look at the tradition. We can't look at the specifics. All right? So with that front matter out of the way, uh, addressing that with Enoch, and also with Jubilees, I don't believe we can really make a strong argument for canonization of of jubilees, even though it is canon in some places. Uh, For example, again, the the Ethiopian church uh, regards it as canon. But there's a lot of stuff in jubilees, and I'll do an episode on jubilees in the future, uh, that show to be a very fundamentalist work where, as I've mentioned before, they, they try to answer unanswered questions from the Genesis narrative, and they wind up creating a lot more problems than they solve. But we'll, we'll talk about jubilees in another episode. But for now, just understand that I'm going to reference these traditions. But understand that we don't have a canonical version of Enoch. Even though there was very clearly a version of Enoch at one time that was very ancient, that was regarded as canonical, And there appears at the time of Yeshua to have been several different versions of Enoch floating around, Uh, one that had clear exaggerations and and another that at least presumptively was not exaggerated and was probably regarded as canon by a large number of people, including Jude and Peter. But uh, just understand that we don't have that version in any kind of complete form today. Now, let me address something that some people will want to ask. We know that there was a version of Enoch that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. so, So it should have been from the time of Yeshua. And one of the things that people would like to do is go to Enoch in this version of the Jerusalem tradition again it's just one version of the Jerusalem tradition it's our window into it but we don't know if it was mainstream or not we know it certainly like I said is a window into it but we don't know if it is accurate to the larger Jerusalem tradition or not but the problem we have is we actually have part of the book of Enoch from the Qumran site where it talks about the giants in chapter seven. Remember me talking about Murphy? Murphy's a jerk, right? He he likes to get us. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong, right? So what we have of the book of Enoch from Qumran, and it came from Qumran Cave 4, and the fragment from chapter 7 says that and to teach them sorcery and there's a gap. They became pregnant by them and and then there's what seems to be bore. It's B and O, transliteration into English. It would be B and O and there's a gap. So, that's that verse that talks about and they became pregnant by them and bore uh, great giants. And in the extant version of the text, it says that were 3,000 elves. But we don't have that size in the ancient text from Qumran. There's a gap there, which is extremely frustrating because if you're like me and you're one of those people that, that is really looking, okay, is there... St- You know, is this one of the versions of the canonical versions of Enoch that Yeshua and his disciples clearly used? Is is this it? Is is this a piece of it? Or, you know, certainly a copy of of, of that, that work. And if it is, what's the height of the giants? And it's not there. You'll see people put in brackets bore great giants 3,000 3, L's or cubits high that's, that's the translator adding stuff that's why it's in the brackets Okay, the size isn't there it's, it's not there so if this is a fragment of the version of the book of Enoch Yeshua and the disciples used it's so fragmented we can't gain any knowledge from it And we can't even get the height of the giants that was referenced. They're making assumptions that it was 3,000 cubits like the extant version. We don't know that, though. And if this is the canonical work, and it is an unexaggerated work, and it is what Yeshua endorsed, I would expect the height to be something a little bit more realistic you know, that they were, you know, not 3,000 L's high, but maybe, you know, 10 L's or something like that. But we don't know. So just just to kind of give people an insight onto that, yeah, there was a canonical version of Enoch. Like I've said, this canonical version of Enoch was used by Jude. It's referenced by Peter. It was clearly used by the disciples. But we don't have it today. We just don't have it. And the and the the text that was in Jerusalem, that was extant at the time of Christ, that was in Qumran, is so damaged we can't get anything out of it. We just have enough to know there was a version of the book of Enoch being used at Qumran. But we can't even tell what the height of the giants were so frustrating so frustrating still <clears throat> again that all, all of that needed to be dealt with and said before we delve into this because when you start getting into the Nephilim things can get very very weird because there's a lot of mythology that gets roped into this This is going to be a little mini-series. I'm going to start out with this episode, and then the next episode I'll deal with views on the flood. I'm going to come back to the Nephilim and do another expanded, and it'll probably be a DE episode on the Nephilim, because I don't want to get into it in this episode, but there is so much mythology associated with the Nephilim, and there are so many books out there associated with the Nephilim where they conflate biblical stuff and myth, and they present it as fact. And they don't, you know, there's one guy who gave a talk, and I was listening to him on on the internet, and I was just, I was just sort of shaking my head because he's talking. About, oh yeah, and the nephilim. You have to understand these first generation nephilim. They had serpent heads and, and fiery eyes and da da da. Like, Where's that coming from? Well, that's coming from myth. That's not coming from scripture. That's extra canonical. St- well, it's not even extra canonical. It's totally non-canonical because it's not even Christian literature that he's drawing that stuff from. That's myth that's out there and so you really have to be careful when you start going into a study of the Nephilim and a lot of these books there's one book out there that I'm dying to read Uh, a friend of mine has it and I've gotten some excerpts of it and this guy makes this argument that there's all these secrets it's a it's a conspiracy theory book but I'm dying to read it to just see what 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 this guy says Uh, because I'm one of those guys, I, I like to think that I have enough discernment that I can read a lot of this conspiracy theory nonsense out there and and discern what, what has a high degree of of bullcrap in it, <laughs> what has a lot of manure in it, and what doesn't. I like to think I can discern that, and I hope I can. Um, you know, but um, you know, sometimes you want to read uh, some of the some of the uh, some of the manure out there. Because you want to see what people are saying, and sometimes you have to read. I mean, I know this sounds strange in a religious podcast. If you have the, the, a gift of discernment, if you are firm in your faith, and you have discernment, it is sometimes good to go out there and read the manure. Because you want to know what people are getting fed, and you have to. And if you don't know the manure, you can't identify it as that. I mean, let's just say it. If you, can't, if, you, if, you, if you don't know the crap, you can't tell people, listen, guys, that's crap. I mean, let's just be honest uh, and be blunt about it. it, it sometimes you, you really need to to be familiar with what the crap stories are that are circulating. So when people come to you and they talk to you about this stuff, that you can discern whether or not this stuff is crap. And there's a lot of garbage out there about the Nephilim. Now, were they unnatural? They absolutely were. There are traditions, Jewish traditions, that they were even possessed of some sorcerous abilities. There is a view that they had magical powers, but Most of the views that are within the Christian and Jewish community kind of end there. They don't go into this, they were monstrous in their height, yes, but they weren't monstrous necessarily in their appearance. They are described as as men of great renown, heroes of old. And heroes does not mean they were necessarily righteous heroes, but they were viewed as heroes. They did mighty deeds. That term heroes in the Hebrew can, can mean doer of great deeds be it evil or good but doer of marvelous great and mighty deeds it doesn't the hero doesn't necessarily mean somebody you have to look up to okay understand that the word hero in, in the Hebrew there does not necessarily mean they were ones you looked up to the, the Bible is very clear very plain that they were evil, and they could only think on evil continually, but they were men of great renown, the heroes of old, and that term hero is doer of great deeds, worker of great works, even though they may have been evil works, they were mighty deeds, okay? So understand that too. To start looking at the Nephilim and what they were, and what all went on back then. We're actually going to go to the second testament first because one of the things that people like to ask is why do I, why do I care? As a Christian, why do I care what the, you know, what the whole business with the Nephilim was? Well, it's because of Yeshua. In Matthew chapter 24 verse 37, Yeshua says, but as the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man. So, Yeshua tells us he's not going to come back in his second coming until the world is as it was in the days of Noah. Now, there's two views on that, obviously, right? If you listen to this podcast for more than one or two episodes, you know that there's always multiple views, at least two, usually three or four. But there's two major views on this. Yeshua may be speaking ideologically that as it was in the days of Noah, we were told, if you listen to the, the very beginning of this episode, you know we're told that in the days of Noah, most people could only think on evil continually. And so some people espouse the view that what Yeshua is talking about is not literal, that it's not going to literally be as it was in the days of Noah, but people are going to have the same attitude. And so metaphorically, the vast majority of people in the world are only going to be able to speak on evil continually. They're only going to be able to think on evil continually. So they'll speak evil continually, they'll think on evil continually, they'll act out evil continually. And that that is when Yeshua is set to return. The other view is more literal. And in that view, people believe that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man returns, he's saying that this is going to be like it was in the days of Noah in just more than a metaphorical way. In this view, we're going to see a resurgence of the Nephilim or their descendants, one of the two. But something of the Nephilim has to come back. Now what's interesting is is this view may actually hold some water. And we'll talk about that a little bit later because Daniel gives us insights into one of his prophecies where he talks about that something alien, and I don't mean alien as an extra, extraterrestrial, okay? When I use the term alien, I mean other than human. I don't mean alien as in extraterrestrials, okay? But that something alien, <clears throat> excuse me, but that something alien is going to attempt to mix with the seed of man, but it's not going to be able to mix with the seed of man. And again, don't mistake me, I am not an advocate of extraterrestrials. I'm not. I'll be honest, I'm not. I don't think God is an extraterrestrial. I don't think angels are, are these you know, extraterrestrial blonde seven-foot tall beings that come down in their little spaceship. That I, That is not my theolo- theological bent okay I'm sorry I don't I don't buy it but when I mean alien I mean other something other than man something that's not man and we'll talk about that when we get to that scripture but let's set the stage because whichever view you believe we've got to figure out what it was like during the days of Noah okay so chapter 6 of Genesis talks about these this days of Noah and it said that it came to pass that mankind had begun to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters of men were born to them and the sons of God, the ben Elohim, saw or looked upon the daughters of men, the Benoth Adam, and they were beautiful, fair, comely, good, there's multiple translations, and they took to themselves, women of all whom they chose. Now we talked about that before. This is divine, and I mean I don't mean divine by God, but divine by divine beings. Right, these are angels. This is this is fallen angels. These divine beings, these sons of God. Remember that's a Hebrew idiom that's only used of a direct creation of God. It's only used of Adam himself and the angels in the First Testament. It's used in the Second Testament that we aspire to become bene Halohim, and that we have the power to become bene Halohim, direct creations of God, because when we are saved, when we accept Christ, there is a creative event. Our soul, which is not created directly by God, it's created of the the natural. The natural has the ability to generate a spirit, But when we're saved, God takes that spirit and reshapes it. We are literally born again spiritually. We don't crawl back into the womb. Remember that whole story, right? Well, how can a man be born again? He's got to crawl back into the womb. No. It is a spiritual rebirth. God takes the spirit that was generated by the natural because the natural is first and then the spiritual. We're told that in the scripture. And he reshapes it with his own hands, and we become a direct creation of God. Okay? But in the theology of the Jews, in the theology of the First Testament, sons of God is a direct creation of God. It's only used of Adam and the angels. So what we see is that these angels, these fallen angels, come in and they took women of all they chose. They took them. The women had no choice. This is divine rape by these fallen angels. These are fallen angels. They come in, they take these women, and they rape them, okay? Now, how did we get to this point? I guess that's what I probably should have started with. But how did we get to this point that we've got these fallen angels coming in and raping human women well for that we're gonna to have to go to the tradition in Enoch and what we're gonna find in the tradition in Enoch is that we've got these rebellious angels and these rebellious angels are going to come down and they're going to make a pact so we're gonna look at the extra canonical tradition here and we're gonna start in the book of Jubilees. Now again, Jubilees is a fundamentalist book. It's not canonical, but it's a useful window into what people thought at the time. So again, this is, this is you know, you, you wanna take this with a grain of salt, but this is a window into the tradition. So we're gonna start with Jubilees. And we're gonna look in Jubilees chapter four, and I'm gonna read start with verse 15. And in the second week of the tenth jubilee, Mahalalel took for himself Dina to be his wife, the daughter of Barakiel, the daughter of his father's brother. And she bore him a son in the third week in the sixth year. And he called his name Jared. For in his days the messengers of the Lord descended on earth, those who are named the Watchers, that they should instruct the children of men and that they should do judgment and uprightness on the earth. So here we get the first mention of the tradition of the watchers, and the watchers are not the angels that fell with the devil in this tradition. So what we're going to find here is there's two traditions regarding the angels that lusted after strange flesh. One tradition is they were fallen angels who fell with the devil. Another tradition is that this is a second fall of angels. Okay? Now, this other tradition is actually supported by the extra-canonical apocryphal material and the stuff that's canonical in the Ethiopian church. But this gives people a lot of heartburn. Understand that. This gives most Western Christians a lot of heartburn that there were two fallings of angels. But if the extra canonical tradition is correct, there were. So we're, we're, we're just going to get through this and, and like I said, you know, go get you any an acid if you need it. Pause the podcast, go get you some, you know, go get you some uh, alka seltzer or something, because this is going to give you a little heartburn. But, all right, so we're set up here in the Jubilee tradition that the watchers were sent by God to the earth to guide people, okay? And we see that in Jubilees chapter 4, verse 15. Now we're going to continue, and we're going to look at the next chapter of Jubilees. So Jubilees chapter 5, verse 1, And it came to pass, when the children of men began to multiply on the face of the earth, Sounds a lot like Genesis, by the way. And daughters were born unto them that the angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee, that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons, and they were giants." So here now in Jubilees, we're seeing what sounds a lot like Genesis 6, right? In Jubilees chapter 5, it starts off with what sounds like Genesis chapter 6, where you've got these angels that see the daughters of men and go in and say, "Hmm, I'm going to take you as a wife. And they go in and they have sex with them and beget giants. So now let's look at the next part of Jubilees, and then we'll start looking at Enoch. So if we skip down, and we're going to hit chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 5 of Jubilees. So we're just going to skip a, a couple of verses. But it says, But Noah found grace before the eyes of God. And against the messengers whom he had sent on the earth, he was exceedingly angry, he mean, meaning God, and he gave command to root them out of all their dominion, and he commanded that they be bound in the depths of the earth, and behold, they are bound in the midst of them and are kept separate. So, in Jubilees, and, and one translation says it commanded us as if it was the, uh, if it's as if it's the angels that are talking, but the point is, is that the binding of the angels in the Jubilean tradition happens before the flood. Okay? That's important to note because when you start trying to have an explanation of how Nephilim show up after the flood, you've got a problem in the Jubilean tradition because you've either got to have a a third group of angels coming in or you've got to have flood survivors and we'll deal with what's the like, most likely scenario later on the, in the next episode when we talk about flood views. But very clearly the Jubilean tradition is that these watchers were angels of God. They weren't fallen angels with the devil, but they sinned when they lusted after women. They create the Nephilim, and God has them bound... Before the flood. So we're going to pick it up in the next verse. This is verse 7 of Jubilees chapter 5. And a command went out against their sons. This is the Nephilim. A command went out against their sons from before his, God's, face, that they should be smitten with the sword and be removed from under the heavens. And he said, My spirit will always abide with man, for they are also flesh, and their days will be 120 years. And he sent his sword into the midst, that each should slay his neighbor. And they began to slay each other until they all fell by the sword and were destroyed from the earth. And their fathers were witnesses of their destruction. And after this they were bound in the depths of the earth forever until the day of great condemnation when judgment is executed on all those who have corrupted their ways and their works before the Lord. And he destroyed all of their places and there was not left even one of them whom he did not judge according to all their wickedness. And he made for all his works a new righteous nature so that they should not sin in their whole nature forever, but should be all righteous, each in his own kind always. And the judgment of of all is ordained and written on the heavenly tablets in righteousness, even the judgment of all who depart from the path which is ordained for them to walk in. And if they do not walk therein, judgment is written down for every creature and for every kind. Okay? so the next problem we get then with the jubilean tradition is the way the jubilean tradition reads is it sounds like god puts a curse on the nephilim and they all destroyed each other with their fathers those angels bearing witness to it before they're bound Well, that presents a problem right there in Jubilees because we're told in Genesis that the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, the days of Noah, and also after that. Yet we're told in the Jubilean tradition that these watcher angels witness the destruction of all their children, that their children all kill each other, because of a curse from God, and then they're bound. So the the Jubilean author has now deviated from the biblical narrative and created a problem. But understand that this is a tradition. This is regarded as canon in many communities in the past, and it's still regarded as canon in the Ethiopian church today. And it's very hard to look at the Jubilean tradition and then reconcile the coming of the Nephilim again later. And we're going to have to figure this out. And and this is is not easy stuff to figure out. So now let's look at the Enochic tradition. Now this is chapter 6 of the first book of Enoch. There's a first book of Enoch, which is what's canon in the Ethiopian text. Fragments of it, like I said, were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a second book of Enoch, which is the Slavonic Secrets of Enoch. We're well, not going to deal with that um, until much, much later. And then there's a third book of Enoch. Now, we're going to start in chapter 6 of the first book of Enoch. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born to them beautiful and fair daughters. And the angels, the sons of heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men, and have children with them. And Samyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear you will not agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty for this great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual curses, so that we do not abandon this plan, but do this thing. Then they all swore together and bound themselves by mutual curses. And they were all in two hundred who descended in the days of Jared onto the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual curses on the act. Then chapter 7. And all of them together went and took wives for themselves, each choosing one for himself, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves with sex with them. And the angels taught them charms and spells and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And the women became pregnant, and they bare large giants whose height was 3,000 l's. The giants consumed all the work and toil of men, and when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind and they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. So that's the Enochic account. So when you bring all of this together, how how does this all fall out? When you bring this all together, what happened was, is the extra-canonical tradition is that there was a war in heaven and that the devil fell with a third of the angels of heaven. Okay. We have no problems with that. That's talked about in our canonical scriptures. It mentions that in Revelation. We don't have a huge problem with that. Then God sends a group of angels, a group of, of 200 angels, And these 200 angels are sent to earth to guide mankind. And they're called the watchers. And these watchers go wayward and they sin. And when they sin, it's a second falling of angels. And the way they sin is they're tempted by flesh. They lust after strange flesh. They descend to the earth in the days of Jared, on to Mount Hermon, and they make a pact that they are going to go in and take wives of of the human women. And they go in and they have sex with human women, and they beget the Nephilim. And the Nephilim are born to these women. It is unclear whether or not the women survived the births, and it's unclear whether or not the babies are relatively normal size, but then just grow to giants, but that kind of is the assumption, okay? And they grow to gigantic stature and are unnatural beings. And this angers God greatly. The Jubilean tradition has God wiping them out before the flood or actually having them wipe each other out. But the other traditions are that they were not wiped out. In fact, the biblical tradition itself contradicts that because it says... In Genesis 6, that the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, days of Noah, and also after that. So the biblical tradition seems to say that the Nephilim did not wipe themselves out. Okay, so there's so the Jubilean tradition is at odds with the Genesis tradition, and certainly at odds with later tradition in the books of Moshe. Okay, but that's where this is falling out just to kind of give you that overview of how all, all this in the traditions gets started. you know what's, what's the narrative there? The important point in the Hebrew pas- passage here is that the sons of God come in and they do this. That's the important point to understand, that the sons of God, this is angels doing this to human women. Now, what results from this? One of the problems that we have, and we'll get to that when, because I'm a little bit, I'm gonna talk about the deception of Julius Africanus. But some people want to say, and this comes out of Julius Africanus, that these were just human beings, that there was a mixing of the lines of Seth and the lines of Cain. We are told that these entities are unnatural. What is born of this? are monsters. Now, I don't mean monsters like, you know, Godzilla all of a sudden appears out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, I'm not talking about monsters in the chimeric or, and by that I mean the chimera, or the, uh, you know, like Typhon from, from Greek mythology, the great Ty- the great Typhon, which was a titan that, that had all these tentacles and all this stuff. We're not talking about monsters in that way. They are monsters though in that they are utterly beyond redemption. They are unable to be repentant. They are unable to consider anything but evil. They are evil in their core and they are unnatural abominations in their spirit. Physically, They are of unnatural stature. And the extra-canonical traditions tell us that they had unnatural powers. They had sorcerous abilities. We're told in extra-canonical texts, such as Enoch, that these fallen angels teach humans charms and spells and things like that. Teach them sorcery. It is also extra-canonical tradition that the Nephilim had sorcerous powers. Being half-angelic, they had more ties to magical power than even humans did. And so they had power as well. But they weren't as great as an angel by any means. But that's extra-canonical tradition. And that sets us up with the understanding of how this starts going on at least what the traditions are as to how this starts going on. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop this episode tonight and let you sort of ruminate on that. The next episode, we'll get into the Cephite contrivance of Julius Africanus. We'll look at the way the Christian church has tried to deal with these very strange traditions. And we'll start looking at the second coming of these Nephilim. We'll start looking at what happens after the flood, how they may have come back, and what their descendants were. And we'll get into the Rephaim, exactly what the Rephaim were, which are, uh, spoiler alert, they seem to be originally a tribe, and then all the descendants of the Nephilim eventually just sort of get Lumped into this term Rephaim. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what Isaiah says about the Rephaim. And we'll talk about uh, different Rephaim who are mentioned. Uh, We're certainly told that Goliath of Gath was one of them and his his sons were were born to uh, to Rapha, that term meaning the tall one. It's not a proper name. And uh, that they were of the Rephaim. So we'll talk about that in the next episode, and then I think what I'll do then, instead of doing the second episode on flood views, what I'm going to do is I'll do that as the third episode, because I'm already looking and we're running running long in this episode, even though I'm trying to keep it SE. So I'm going to go ahead and let you ruminate on this with this episode. Next episode, we'll talk about the contrivance of Julius Africanus, what the, how the church tried to distance themselves from this belief in the angel view of Genesis 6, and how we're now coming back to that, and how how we, we start seeing Nephilim appear again, or at least their descendants, after the flood. And then with the third episode, we'll deal with views of the flood and... Hopefully by that point, we'll have given a solid enough base for people to truly understand the implications of what the Nephilim were, the implications of what they did, and the implications of some of the prophecies that say they may return again. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Bible, Heresies, and Orthodoxies. If you have, Don't forget to give me a like or subscribe and tell others about the show. And until next time, good night. And may the blessings of Yeshua be upon you. May the Lord bless and keep you. Make His face to shine upon you. And may He bring you peace. Until next time, good night.